Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Climb to Engine 11 Rescue 11. Engine 11 Rescue 11. Respond out to USS Bullhead Park. It's going to be at 1606 San Pedro Drive Southeast, cross street of the U.S. Veterans Hospital Loop. Responding out to a six-month-old female. Unconscious, she is breathing. She's hitting the head of the baseball. It's going to be a 30 Delta 3 for Engine 11 Rescue 11. It's going to be USS Bullhead Park, Field 3, 30 Delta 3. This is the AFR podcast. Today we're talking about pediatric trauma. And once again, I have Captain Kevin Ferrando. Hey, Kevin, thanks for coming on again. Uh, thanks for having me, Andrew. And uh, we ran a little bit long. We tried to do an all inclusive trauma, but there was just so much stuff going on with those two patients that we had that uh, we have to make a whole separate pediatric trauma podcast. Kevin, uh, what's different about kids and adults? Um, so I think the, the first thing to recognize is that they're, they're not little adults. They're their own separate um, patient that you're going to have that's going to present a lot different than, than adults. So uh, some of the things that I think we should focus on just obviously is going to be their anatomy. The obvious thing is they have a larger skull, larger head, which makes up a big part of their body. So they may not have that balance because they're kind of top heavy and not, uh, not going to be able to, you know, have the same balance. They don't have the same coordination, same muscle growth as us as adults. They do have a lot less fat. Um, their bones are more elastic. Their soft tissue is more, their connective tissue is more elastic. It's more pliable. As far as their organs go, they're more, di- they're more tightly condensed, more tightly packed. So that means they're going to be a lot closer to the surface and more susceptible to trauma. You know, that's one thing that, with these softer bones too, and organs that are in this tightly packed space. So those impacts, those falls could definitely cause more internal injury, more internal trauma than it would to an adult. So how do we treat these kids? First, do you have any kids? Uh, I do have three. Okay, cool. Yeah, I got three kids too. And I feel like that's kind of the way that I've learned, you know, the most about kids is just having them get hurt my own kids get hurt. So I feel like that helps me uh, take care of them a little bit better. But imagine that we have uh, some 23-year-old people in our department that, uh, you know, don't like holding kids or touching kids. What what should we let them know about the best way to take care of kids? Well, you know, I think that uh, you have to be child-friendly. You really have to just be able to put yourself in a situation that's more, less threatening to the child. Uh, you can always use the parent, that's going to be one of your, your best assets on these scenes, depending on the age of the child, depending on the level of mentation of the child. You know, if it's maybe not the most critical, if it's just the rolled off the couch and they're kind of crying, they're inconsolable, it's going to be, you know, mom, dad, maybe the best person to hold that child while you try to perform that primary assessment, that secondary survey, and, um, you know, before you start really dictating what kind of treatment you're going to get. Uh, if it's, uh, you know, maybe a little bit older, you, you start getting these different age groups and some of these kids respond to, uh, you know, strangers differently, but the best is try to get to their level. Okay. So when you say get to their level, that's kind of like actually crouching down. Um, you don't want to be towering over these kids. Um, and then if there's a person that seems like they have a better relationship, maybe there's somebody with kids on the crew that knows more about it, you know, have them be the one talking to the kid, you know? Absolutely. If you're more comfortable with, uh, you know, being around, you know, being around children and being able to um, kind of relate to them. Um, yeah, use that to your strong point. Okay. So again, we're talking about pediatric trauma today and trauma, you know, at once you get past six months old, trauma is a leading cause of death in kids. 
And uh, with that, head injuries specifically are a big killer. So head injuries are going to account for between 70 and 80 percent of all pediatric deaths. So we're going to start start there. I know we spent a lot of time talking about head injuries on the last podcast, but we'll do it a little bit more since it's such a, a problem with these pediatric patients. All right, we'll go into, uh, again, most severe kind of head injuries first. We'll talk about epidural hematoma. This one, a good mechanism would be like a blow to the side of the head. So right around the ear, kind of that soft spot by the ear, you should be suspicious of a epidural hematoma. That's going to be that arterial bleed, and they're going to get worse very quickly. Um, and that's going to be different from your subdural hematoma. So remember, subdural hematoma, that's going to be uh, venous bleeding. Uh, example for kids would be maybe shaken baby syndrome. So that, that brain is shaken around the skull. The bottom of the skull has a lot of uh, stuff for the brain to rub against, and it can cause a venous bleeding, which is going to be that subdural hematoma. Some other things that you learn about with head injuries in the textbook would be like a basilar skull fracture where you're going to have raccoon eyes or battle signs. But uh, Kevin, what do we what do we need to take away from some of those different signs? Those are going to be your late indicators of, of, you know, of a trauma. And a lot of times those are going to be related to your child abuse cases. Okay. So if you start seeing kids who maybe, you know, do present with these raccoon eyes or this bruising, um, you start going down that, uh, was this a child abuse case? Um, you know, you need to expose these kids. You need to get a good assessment. And like I said, those are more of a late sign. So this is something that's happened, you know, probably prior to 24 hours and then some. Okay, so uh, we'll, we'll come back to child abuse in just a second. Uh, let's wrap up with the real quick on the different head injuries. So those are some of the serious things we could go on. Um, I guess a little bit one step down from that would be something like a concussion, maybe for a teenage age group. Do yeah. you have any experience with those? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've worked in the PDR at UNM for a while, and it's, it's been several years ago, but we see a lot of kids come in. Your contact sports, you know, you have a higher likelihood of, you know, having these kids who will have a, a concussion, mild, minor, major. You know, we'll talk a little bit more later on about maybe recognizing some of these signs. But, you know, at its simplest, it's a bruised brain. And, um, you know, they're going to have altered mentation. And so kind of the things we're looking for with these head traumas is going to be just, you know, how they're presenting. Are they nauseated? Are they having any vomiting? Are they just not acting appropriate? You know, obviously, if they're knocked out, that's going to obviously give you a higher indication that this is a serious head injury, and that's going to need 100% transport to the hospital and evaluation. A lot of times, uh, the minor ones, or if you, you know, child rolls off the couch, they're crying, you know, they're behaving like a normal child who, you know, suffered maybe a fall, that might not necessarily be that head injury, that might not be that concussion. So you go back to as a parent or as a provider, look at the child, is he behaving normal? Is there any indications that uh, he's that's not presenting right? Would this be something that's needing to get evaluated and further um, looked at at the ED? Yeah, I'm glad that you're here actually. Uh, you mentioned you work in the PED ER. I think it's helpful to understand what's gonna take place at the hospital. So we went through all the serious head injuries and those definitely need to be transported right away. I've been on you know, dozens of calls of little kid running around on the couch, fell off, started crying right away, didn't get knocked out, acting fine now, we show up and the kid looks completely fine. So we're never going to tell somebody that they shouldn't go to the hospital, but we can educate our patients uh, prior to them going in. So working in that PEDS ER, 
you know, what is going to happen? What treatment are they going to get for that situation just to be able to educate our patients? Well, for the kid who just falls off the couch and, you know, parents are concerned that they did hit their head, you're going to just do a lot of just observation, not necessarily uh, any x-rays or CT scans. You know, if you have a three, four-year-old who does fall off and they are presenting normal, but it was enough of an impact that the parents thought, let's get this kid looked at, completely appropriate. However, when you have a child that's going to have to be required to sit still, be cocooned in a, you know, a Velcro blanket and then put into the CT scanner, that's pretty, uh, pretty traumatizing. And a lot of times you're not going to have a child that's just going to sit still. So the, they're going to just look, watch those kids for a while, you know, see how they're doing. And if there's indications that they need to get a, you know, further evaluated, then, you know, the doctors at that point are definitely going to make their decisions. You know, once you get to the ER though, physicians are going to do a, uh, you know, head to toe evaluation, but a lot of it just really revolves around just observation. Yeah, and the doctors don't like to radiate those kids, so that would be like a X-ray or a CT, just arbitrarily. So they're gonna again, they're gonna want to have some indications that it's necessary. In uh, Dr. Pruitt's lecture on head trauma, she mentioned PCARN, and again, it's just something that physicians use in the hospital to decide if they're gonna do a uh, CT on this kid's head. So some reasons that they would do it if the kid's got altered mental status, then that's going to be a reason to do it. Um, if they're vomiting after they fall and hit their head or if they lost consciousness at some point, those again would all play into their decision on giving that head CT. But if not, if they fall, fall off the couch, no loss of consciousness, no vomiting. If they're old enough to say that they have a headache, if they don't have a headache, then all of these things, they're not going to get a CT most likely at the, at the ER. So I think a little bit of education um, to the parents, that's what they're looking for, right? They call because they're scared and their kid's crying. So I think if we're able to educate them a little bit on the process and what's going to happen when they go into the, the hospital, um, that'll be helpful when they're trying to decide whether they want um, transport or to transport their kid by themselves. So um, that's important for us to know. And, and it's good that you that you worked in that, that ER, Kevin. Do you have any last thoughts on that again about the treatment that they're going to get going in? Uh, not not really. Um, you know, one thing is if the child's crying, as us as providers, we walk into some of these houses, and if your child is upset, that's actually a good thing. We don't want to see this child who's just laying there, who's um, not behaving normally, not behaving age appropriate. Um, those are the ones that give us concern. If the child's crying, you know, natural response to pain or fear, and that's usually our a good sign. Yeah, okay. So now we want to take a moment to cover child abuse. Um, I haven't personally been on a ton of these calls. I, I've, I've been on a couple where the parents have some really weird story, you know, that just doesn't make any sense in my mind. I'm like, why, like, why would that have happened? Um, but since you worked in that pediatric ER, what, what, what examples have you seen or of so abuse signs? You know, unfortunately, a lot of the ones that we did see were, they were pretty severe. Uh, you're gonna, I think, look at burns you're going to look at bruising. You know, these kids will have a tendency to even bite their lips, depending on their age. If they, if they're, you'll see like bite marks on their bottom lip. So that's a grimacing move. So if you see a weird things about their lips or even their mouth, um, even this piece of skin that attaches from the lip to the tongue, or I mean the lip to the teeth can get pulled. So if there's tearing on that, uh, you know, these are kind of indications that there might've been some child abuse issues going on. So we kind of talked about exposing these kids. Just do a good primary survey. I mean, I don't want everyone to be suspicious that every pediatric call is a child abuse, but 
do a good thorough head to toe, look for signs of, you know, burns, the bite marks on their lips, any kind of weird bruising, things that just don't fit the norm. Uh, maybe even how the child, how he behaves around providers. Uh, that's one thing that I remember when kids who did, who, who did suffer from child abuse came into the ED, a lot of times they weren't scared of providers. And it was kind of interesting that, you know, my kids wouldn't look at a stranger without, you know, complete terror. Uh, a lot of these kids that would come in, you know, they'll, they'll go to anybody. Um, they were it, just a different behavior. I can't really describe it, but they just didn't seem like they had that same fear of people that, that uh, a lot of kids normally have at that age. Hmm. So maybe it's a little bit different. I, I guess in the beginning, we're talking about using the parents as a, as a comfort for the kid, but maybe in this situation, would uh, the kid be more comfortable with you? Uh, being the one to hold on to it, or that, is that what it sounds like? I think like? it's just a, a, you know, you'd have to really gauge each situation differently. Uh, you know, some of these parents are just going to hand the kids off. I don't know if, you know, try to read the parents, try to read the child. You know, it goes back to just good assessment, good set primary survey, you know, obtain that history. You're kind of interviewing everybody in that area, in that room, in that home. So, and you know, there's a lot of indicators. Some of the ones I did see come through the PZD were, you know, these, it was a, it was pretty severe traumas, a lot of breaks, you know, you'd see these fractures that were in several stages of the healing process. So a lot of bruising and, you know, just kind of just be very observant to that. All right, let's move on to chest trauma. So again, we had a trauma podcast recently and a lot of this stuff, you know, they're kids, but they still have a chest. They still have an abdomen. So we're going to run through real quick, uh, say chest trauma, and just talk about the differences again in chest trauma to kids versus adults. Uh, absolutely. So like we said earlier, you know, these kids have more tightly packed organs in the, both their abdominal area and their thoracic area. So that means that those structures are going to be closer to the surface, uh, more susceptible to injury. And, you know, when these kids have suffered these impacts, whether it's a bicycle wreck or a fall or a motor vehicle accident, um, it's going to give you a, an idea that, hey, this is a potential for that trauma. They're not going to present the same as adults. You know, they can maintain, they can compensate a lot longer than us. They can keep their vitals at a normal rate with a 25 to, what, 40% loss of uh, blood volume. It's going to be one of these signs where, they look great until they don't look great. And then at that point, we're, uh, we're already behind the curve. You know, as far as the chest trauma goes, we, it's, it's completely acceptable to dart these kids if they meet that tension, tension pneumophysiology. But make sure that they are going down that route, not just yeah, let's so dart these kids. We want to have uh, hypoxia. We want to have absent lung sounds on one side if you can hear it. And when they start becoming hypotensive, that's, you know, again, it's hard to say whether it's from the... Uh, the bleeding or from the tension pneumo, but once you start getting that uh, hypotension, that's when that is pushing into the tension pneumo category. Correct, and that's that, that's when then now we're going to start making sure that our our patient's going to match our treatment. If you look at the the guideline, there is a reference for pediatric needle decompression, so it's age based, and it's going to be zero to five is an eighteen gauge, five to twelve is a sixteen gauge, and then over. 12, 12 is yeah. a 14 gauge. So. Yeah, there's a lot of like different numbers on like what isn't a kid anymore and it kind of depends. But um, yeah, 12 in, a, in our department, you know, kind of the cutoff for like innovations and crikes um, is going to be 13 and up. And so that you're going to treat 12 as a, as a pediatric. So it kind of changes depending on what you're talking about specifically. But 
um, there's going to be different ages. And yeah, if you get to this needle decompression, anybody over 12 is going to be a 14 gauge. And, you know, their anatomy is different, you know, so they are using their diaphragm a lot more to actually breathe, get those ventilations in and out. So, you know, you might not see the, the same indicators as you would in an adult. One other thing that can happen in kids is still going to be classified as a trauma, like um, this commotio cordis. So like a baseball or a, uh, a blow to the chest, if it happens at just the right time, it can send this kid into V-fib. But you don't want to treat this as a trauma arrest. You want to treat this as a medical arrest. So get the pads on. If it's appropriate to defibrillate, then go ahead and defibrillate. That, that's kind of the one caveat. Although it's a trauma, you want to treat this as a, uh, as a medical code. Absolutely. Let's move down to the abdomen again. Same things that we talked about. I think the last one we had an evisceration. Um, but just talk about the, the general differences, again, between kids and adults. You know, it still goes back to their anatomy. It's just uh, organs are closer, more densely packed. One of the common accidents, what we see is, you know, those elementary school age kids, you know, bicycle wreck and handlebar into the abdomen. So there's a lot of organs there that are very close to the surface that they can definitely injure, uh, rupture. You know, the spleen is right there, and it's, it's going to be very susceptible to um, rupture, tear, and that can cost uh, you bleeding out very quickly. So if they have that pain, um, that abdominal pain, if they're having a hard time getting over that pain or that impact, um, start really thinking a high index of suspension. There might be some internal trauma. Okay, so I mentioned that we've both got kids. Not everybody has kids, but I'm sure everybody, uh, most people were a kid at one point. I, I hope so. That's safe to say. Um, so just think back to some of the stuff that you did when you were a kid. And I, I think, Kevin, you were telling me that you had a splenic injury. Uh, yeah, I had a several breaks and, you know, fractures growing up, but um, uh, I was probably 16 years old, just in the middle of a football game. I took a helmet to the abdomen and suffered a very partial spleen rupture or tear. It uh, was interesting because, you know, it felt like just a, you got the wind knocked out of you. Nothing major, really couldn't stand up like I thought and had this just a diffused abdominal pain. One of the later signs, though, that evening, um, I started getting really bad left shoulder pain is pretty common with, I guess, spleen injuries because ah, there's a lot curse of sign, huh? yeah, a lot of nerves. So, uh, you know, mom was like, oh, we're going to the ER. Actually did do some CTs, saw that there was a small tear. They didn't remove my spleen. A lot of bed rest, though, about three weeks, and then um, back to normal. But what's interesting is that pain in my left shoulder lasted for, it would come in, it was intermittent for probably a year. Um, not debilitating, but just you knew it was there. Very strange, even after, you know, everything was completely healed up. So oh, that's crazy. I was fortunate that they didn't have to remove my spleen. But, um, yeah. I always thought that was just another uh, doctor that wanted to have something named after him, you know. But it uh, turns out it's a real thing. Yeah, huh? no, it really did. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty painful. So, And uh, apparently that, so that's sign. It can be for uh, referred pain to the shoulder from the spleen. Also the liver, it's still called the same thing. So, but the liver is going to be over the right side. So um, just look out for that if you happen to hear it. All right. So we're moving down from the abdomen to the pelvis. So again, uh, pelvis is going to be about similar to what we talked about in the last podcast. You want to check for the pelvic stability. If it's unstable, you want to be able to splint that pelvis to try to uh, stop the bleeding in there. Now, if the kid doesn't fit our pelvic splint, then just remember that you can use something like a, a sheet or like a blanket from 5.5 five and you just want to put some pressure on that pelvis to, to keep it closed and try to stop the bleeding. Yeah, very vascular in the pelvis region and uh, 
yeah, just minimize the movements in that area. Okay, so everything we talked about prior to this point has been uh, pretty bad injuries. Now, I think most common, this is what we're going to see most likely um, day-to-day responding out to calls. So we got more of like an isolated extremity injury. What are the takeaways we need to remember about these injuries, Kevin? I think the biggest thing is that, yeah, these, like you just said, Andrew, this is going to be our, our, probably our number one thing. You go to that kid who fell off his bike, he fell off a skateboard. Um, he's got, you know, whether it's an obvious or obvious deformity to his arm from a, you know, fracture, or if there's just pain to that area, we want to make sure that we're treating their pain. I think we have gotten a lot better at that, but I think it's scary to give these kids, you know, pain medications, but that's what we really need to do. That's going to be our probably our number one priority is just let's get that pain addressed. And, you know, as we're working on whether we're splinting or whether we're, you know, how we're treating it, if there's no major bleeds or anything like that, it's a very simple, just a broken arm or extremity fracture. Let's make sure we take away that pain as best we can. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it can be traumatizing. I still remember I jumped off a swing when I was eight and I reached out my arm kind of hyperextended. I broke my arm and, you know, my mom was a nurse, so she didn't care at all about my pain. She just took me in uh, POV to the hospital. Then we showed up and I, my arm still hurt, but nobody cared still. And they brought me to the x-ray and were, you know, moving my arm around. I was trying to kind of like guard my arm and hold it in a bent position. They were like straightening it out. They're like, hold still. Cause we can't get this x-ray and not once did anybody uh, consider uh, give me some pain meds. So, uh, I had a very similar arm break story. My mom did not give a whole lot of sympathy for my, uh, my broken arm as well. Uh, drove me to the, the ER and ended up getting uh, two plates in my arm because they couldn't uh, set it. It was broken so badly. But um, they actually did give me pain medication. So maybe I was one up on you on that there one. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, they had a <laughs> medical, that city's hospital should be more proud than, than uh, Cleveland, I guess. <laughs> yeah. One other thing when it comes to these injuries with kids is uh, believe the kids. (laughs) You know, if you got a kid just going on and on about an injury, a lot of times parents kind of like to dismiss it and and not believe them. But, you know, I think both of our daughters have had broken arms that we (laughs) did not believe them. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you my daughter's story. So, yeah, she suffered a fall um, from one of the bounce houses. You know, my arm hurts. You know, you're looking at it. No swelling, no bruising, complete range of motion. It hurts, it hurts. And you're like, well, but, you know, let's just keep an eye on it. Here's some ice. Uh, you know, 24 hours later, and it's like it's still bothering me. All right, let's go to urgent care. They x-ray it, and, yeah, it's a broke, yeah. broken arm. So, oops. Right. It took us a while to bring my daughter in, and so we finally brought her in, got an x-ray. And uh, the x-ray was negative, and she kind of just was whining about it for another three weeks. So... Uh, we brought her to an urgent care. They didn't take an x-ray because they looked and were like, oh, she got an x-ray. It was negative. So we'll just give her this splint. And she kept complaining about it. She had like an orthopedic follow-up. And then finally, you know, a, a month or six weeks after her her fracture, they're like, oh, yeah, it turns out it's broken, but it's already healed. So we don't have to worry about a, putting a cast on it or anything. Yeah, that's you know, it's, it can definitely uh, fool you. They don't present the same way. We, we talked about their bones are more flexible. Uh, my daughter's the same thing. It was, you know, never, there was never any deformity. It was, uh, you know, the green stick break, very minor. You could, e- could hardly even see it on an x-ray, but uh, it was still enough to where they splinted it for a few weeks. All right. So the point of this, again, is to treat the pain. So what are our options, Kevin, for treating that pain, even uh, at the basic level? 
So basic meds, you're going to be able to go down the uh, Motrin route. Uh, we can do 10 milligrams uh, per kilogram. Uh, we also carry Tylenol, so 15 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, these are great choices. Yeah, these are um, getting into. So Motrin is going to be for oh. the basics, and then as we get into uh, intermediate and paramedics, and we can start moving down. We can use uh, Tordol is another option, so one milligram per kilogram IM, uh, and we can do 0.5 milligrams kilogram IV or IM. So when we start looking at our narcotics, uh, it's going to be fentanyl is going to be our choice, and your dose is going to be 0.5 uh, and to one milligram or microgram per kilogram. So our routes of administration for fentanyl, we can do it IN, so intranasal, IV, IM, and uh, don't discount giving it IN. It's a it's a great way. You know, you have that eight year old whose last thing he's going to want is to be stuck with a with a, a needle, and so you know you give these I, these kids IN based on their dose, and uh, it might just be enough to take the edge off to where you're still going to get a line started. Um, with all that being said, uh, look at the patient know try to gauge where their their pain is and it might be difficult on a three or four year old you know maybe a seven or eight year old could really vocalize what how bad it hurts you know hey is this the worst pain you think you've ever had you know try to really understand it it might be a little bit more difficult with a child and then treat the treat the pain appropriately uh one of the other things is vitals are vital let's try to get those baseline sets of vitals before and after any medication administration so and then just constant monitoring yeah, I'm glad you bring up the nasal route because um, I think just for the speed of actually, you know, treating that pain as soon as you can, you know, this person is suffering, you want to get them out of that suffering state, you know, as soon as possible. And in my opinion, it's a lot easier to just get uh, the fentanyl on board nasal. And that way, once you do follow up with an IV, say later on, you know, they're already feeling better at that point. So for me, it's real quick to no matter what the age of the patient to give the nasal route. Um, one thing you have to remember with the fentanyl is you, we want to get them on Capno afterwards because that can affect the respiratory drive. So absolutely. You know, it goes back to just monitoring the vitals. One thing I wanted to add to uh, extremity injuries. A lot of times we want to be quick to get these kids in a, a SAM splint or, you know, maybe sling it. And what I have found is, you know, sometimes this causes more discomfort to those kids uh, if they find themselves where they're pretty good in the position of comfort and they're able to hold that arm um, where they're comfortable and they're not having any extra pain and, you know, we feel that we can move them without it being jostled or, you know, causing them more discomfort, I just have them splint themselves splint. And that tends to work a lot better than us actually trying to manipulate the arm, set it in a SAM splint, wrap it with Curlex, sling it. Uh, you know, I've seen that where the kid's doing good until we try to actually make it better. So, you know, they can give them more sedation meds at the ER, they can do a little bit better job of, of treating that pain and getting that arm ready for x-ray. One note, also I know we don't carry ketamine, but just remember it's an option that 5.5 has that's uh, supposed to be pretty effective on kids. Last topic we're gonna cover uh, in this podcast is gonna be burns. So again, Kevin, the pediatric anatomy expert, what's gonna be different about these kids and what do we need to know about burns in them? So they're, the, the one glaring uh, thing is their heads are bigger. And so instead of it being worth nine, it's worth 18. Uh, where they take the numbers from is, is the legs are now down to 13.5 for each leg. So um, our palm method is going to be pretty effective, and it's their palm. So And that counts for, uh, what, 1%? Okay, yeah. So depending on how big it is, you can do those different um, 
different methods that estimate the body surface area of the burn. Um, you are going to want to do that. Then some other treatment you're going to do is where they have the burn, you're going to want to cover that with like a burn sheet that's not going to, you know, Curlex is going to get kind of stuck. And then when you go to take that Curlex off, it's going to rip some skin off. So you want to have like a burn sheet kind of material or a non-adhesive dressing on there. Um, treat the pain. Again, we just talked about that. You want to give a fluid. So if you look in our guidelines, it talks about fluid resuscitation in burn patients. And it breaks it down into, uh, uh, let's see, 0 to 5, you can give 120 cc's of fluid, 5 to 14, 250 cc's, and then over 14, you give 500 cc's. So, you know, we used to have like the Parkland formula to calculate and all that, but our guidelines kind of simplify it for us and just it's age-based. So, if you have a burn, just go to our guideline, reference it, reference the age. Uh, the same can be said for cyano kit. So if you have somebody with a um, smoke inhalation, altered mental status, and maybe they're starting to have uh, hypotension after that, then you want to consider cyano kit and just know that in our guidelines, it breaks it down by age, whether you're going to give, you know, an adult, you're going to give the full bottle, but pediatrics you can give an eighth of a bottle quarter of a bottle half a bottle so again just check the guidelines any other takeaways kevin that we need to remember about burns and kids uh you know just to touch on the on the cyano kit if they have any indications of that smoke inhalation hopefully as a provider they'll be aware of that you know we're going to put capno uh, we're going to start oxygenation watching that airway making sure that it's not going to close up. As far as administering a cyano kit, it's going to be 7 eighths will have it on their trucks. Squads have it, or squad one and squad three. So we're just going to take it, and like you said, we're just going to go right off the age base and uh, administer it per that. Okay, and then when it comes to airway for the burns, remember we're not criking or intubating anybody under the age of 13. That's absolutely correct. So 12 and under, uh, no ET tubes. Uh, it's going to be your superglottic. That's going to be your LMAs. No intubations under 12, 12 and younger. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. Um, hopefully you got some general takeaways of, you know, pediatric trauma, how they're a little bit different than adults. They got bigger heads. They got more flexible bones and uh, be suspicious of underlying injuries. Any other takeaways that you have, Kevin? I think we're good, and Andrew. I think we covered a lot of it. And, uh, uh, hopefully this helps everybody treat those pediatric patients. Perfect. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you on the next episode.